The following episode of TOEFOP is rated MA for mature audiences. It may contain sexual references, time travel references, allegations of bin misconduct, and mild coarse language. TOEFOP advises that this episode is not suitable for anyone under the age of 15 or anyone who thinks a comedy conversation between two old mates sounds like a terrible idea for a show. Minors must be accompanied by a parent or guardian. This is John Deke speaking. And relax, this is Tofop. I'm Charlie Clawson. I am Will Anderson. Hello, and thank you for watching. And uh, I am relaxed, Will, because it is my turn to be doing Tofop from a bed. Uh, I'm currently in Melbourne down here for a little bit of time, doing some work down here in a rented apartment, and uh, nowhere good to uh, do a podcast from except the bedroom. So uh, I know how you felt all those weeks ago. And how is it? Because you're an actor. You can describe, like, you know, what the different oh. state of being is. Like, how, how do you feel doing the podcast from the bed? I was thinking about it. I, I was thinking I feel a bit like some young, hip tech dude. Like, I don't know, like Jack from Twitter or something. Imagine this is how he does that's, a lot of meetings. That's I'm, your version of a young, hip tech dude, by the way. Jack from Twitter. <laughs> like a thing that's been around for hip? a decade. Like, the internet's only been around for, like, ten and a half years. Like, Twitter's <laughs> been around for ten of them. All right, well, give me another young, hip tech dude. How would like, I know? The but I bet there are some. Well, do you know? But you know it's a cliche. My point being, I'm sitting a here. A young, hip I'm tech wearing, dude like Elon Musk. <laughs> <laughs> young, hip tech dude like, like Bill Gates, you for know. instance. Let's just throw that out there. But the point being, I'm sitting here in my fisherman pants. I'm cross-legged on a bed. I've got all my devices. I've got an iPad. I've got an iPhone. I've got my, my laptop, my, my podcast recording gear all laid out in front of me. I feel like, I feel like that. I feel like, yeah, man. I mean, I don't have an office. Offices are so like 1950s, dude. Like I just work from wherever, you know, the world is my office. I mean, in a way that is true. I was watching, yep. um, the Bee Gees documentary on, uh, one of the <laughs> streaming channels last night. And it's, amazing like it's so good i'd heard from a few people that it was good and i was like i'm not really interested in the bjs i don't think well it turns yeah, out charlie i was wrong i'm super interested in the bjs <laughs> particularly because like it's one of those things like you're watching a mystery that you know key plot points in but you've never really understood the mm. story behind it all so the story of that yep. group the brothers like falling out between the brothers like the various different stages of they were one of the original like bands that evolved their sound that went from being one thing to being a completely different thing, like in a pop sense. And then when Saturday Night Fever came along and became the highest selling album of all time at the time, like just to see the highs and lows of their career and where they had it. And like, it was absolutely fucking fascinating. I was like, so into this documentary. Here's what I know about the Bee Gees. Three of them. Brothers, Australian, staying alive. That's it. That's where my knowledge ends. Okay. Will I enjoy this documentary? Yeah, I think you will. Because I think you like know a whole bunch of the songs and there'll be a couple of the songs where you're like, oh, I didn't even realize that was a BG song necessarily. And it's not just three brothers. There's a bonus brother that comes along later. So... Is there? Yeah. It's like the Auntie Donna of disco. <laughs> so, okay. So, this is how the BGs roll out, by the way. And... So anyway, the whole point that I wanted to get to, and then I'll come back to the BGs, was okay. you saw a lot of when they were hitting at radio stations, you saw what Casey Kasem 
or whatever was broadcasting from, like back in the days where, and of course we think of like radio studios now as being these quite, you know, glamorous and well set up rooms. They were really just like in some cupboard in the back of like, you know, so for <laughs> acoustics, like, you know, surrounded by records, like it is not dissimilar to what we are doing now. So it's actually just going back to where radio came from. Like, yeah, I get it. That's us. Yeah, we're taking it back. We're 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 hips. We're the hipsters of broadcasting. It's, we're getting it back to what it used to be. You know what it is? It's deconstructed broadcasting. That's what Tofu is. That's right. It's radio, but deconstructed. <laughs> so anyway, so the, okay, BGS. So there's because I think you actually will be interested in this. So there's four of them. So there's Barry, who's the eldest, and then there's yep. two twins. There's Robin okay. and Maurice, and then or Morris maybe. And then there's Andy, who's the younger brother, who comes along a little bit later. Andy Gibb. So yeah, I think Morris is the one I, I didn't know about. But was he one of the original ones? Yeah, Morris is and like. Bar- hang on, a twin. Barry, Andy, Morris, and who? Oh, see, now I've forgotten. Uh- <laughs> <laughs> Such a good documentary. <laughs> Uh, you can't even remember. Oh my god! Like I said it like thirty seconds ago. I'm like a goldfish. Yeah, okay, Barry. Barry, Morris, Andy. Robin. Did I say Robin, Robin. before? Yeah, cool. Yeah, you did. All you right, did. so Barry and Robin are like the real stars of it. Maurice is sort of like, you know, the glue that holds them together. But Robin and Maurice, Maurice are actually <laughs> twins. <laughs> and okay, then there's Andy, who became a teen idol in his own right and at one stage was actually a more popular act than the Bee Gees and then eventually joins the Bee Gees. So like gets incorporated right. into the Bee Gees. So there's four of them in the end. But their career, like they're not Australian, they're English, but they spent like they started as a group in Australia when they were living in Australia oh. and then went to um, back to England and then ended up in America recording most of like their really famous music. But they have generations of success where you're like, oh, you guys were really famous here doing this style of thing and then you were really famous and then no one wanted you for ages. Then disco happened and that you sold the most albums anyone's ever sold. But then what fucking happened was disco sucks and you were like the emblem of like it's mm. the highs and lows of it. And like they have good interviews like Chris Martin talks about, you know, like what it's like to be the biggest band in the world and suddenly have everybody hate you and stuff like that. It's actually a really cool documentary. So is, did they explain why Barry Gibb, he's the beardy one, yeah. right? Why Barry, well, the most beardy, the one who looks like a lion. He's, the, he's lion the one who's guy. still alive. So he gets to right. narrate a fair bit of the story. Would you say he's staying, staying alive? alive, Will? <laughs> he's got a tattoo now that says staying alive. But he was like the best looking, most masculine one. How come all the brothers look so different? Well, actually, the twins kind of look a bit the same, but yeah, they missed out on the... So Barry is... It's really funny when you see it. Barry and Andy look like twins more than right. Robin and Maurice the look twins. like twins. It's, it's, there's so much going on and like their style of music and like just how distinctive it was and like how they wasted all their money the first time around and they clearly live the rock star lifestyle like in in some really huge ways and like there was a falling out between the brothers for years and like it's like, like Noel Gallagher's interviewed on it like about the difficulty of being uh, in like a band with your I relatives mean, stop right there any musical documentary that has involvement from Noel Gallagher I will watch he is such great value on camera I mean you've already sold me 
on this documentary. But what is it, do you think, because I love a good, I'm not musical in the slightest, you know, I have, I even struggle like, you know, naming bands that have recorded anything in the last 30 years, but I love a good music documentary. What do you think makes a great music documentary? I think different things for different ones. What I like about this is it's actually, I think it's a Kennedy Miller or whatever, like it might be an Australian production or like a a production house that has an Australian link. And it's done in a pretty traditional style. Like it literally just kind of is like, he's like a few people who are going to be talking heads and reflect. So Barry is obviously the BG who's still able to be involved. And then like Justin Timberlake's in it and Mark Ronson's in it. And like, you know, so a few contemporary artists to sort of put them in that. Like when you hear Justin Timberlake, dissecting songs and going see what they're doing with their voices that that normally would have been horns it sounds like bah, bah, bah. like like he's talking about the ah 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 from staying alive he's like normally you just like ah. do that with horns and the the when the they're talking to a lot of the production people behind the scenes so like the first time they use tracking like instead of drumming like you know like you see them loop it all around and they kind of recreate it so there's some fascination to both the story of the band but there's stories about the music industry in general that get weaved through it. And then with the BGs, because they change styles in the times, but also change, change countries, you get to see an insight into what like Britain was like at this time, then like what Miami was like at this time through disco and what that was like. And then they've got a good amount of historical like documentary footage so you get to see them like when the barry's on this tv show after like disco sucks and the riots and all that sort of shit like barry's on this tv show just like desperate going we just like we're just musicians who want to release music and like everyone in the world fucking hates us like it's not (laughs) fair it's really compelling there's australia like because i'm an insecure australian who needs my country validated by every celebrity uh, does Australia get much acknowledgement or is it just more of a footnote? A bit of a footnote, but well represented because mm. their manager was an Aussie. Right. And so, and he's like a total, like Barry Humphreys character, <laughs> like, you know, so Les Patterson style, like wacky tie and looks like he's bo- very Boris Johnson before Boris Johnson. So, we're we talking sort of Mel Gibson ish, where Mel came here at like eight years old, stayed here for 10 years, then went back to the States. Was it about that amount of time or less? I don't know if it was that amount of time, but what they did was they recorded their first album in Australia. So you kind of, if your origin story as a band is when you started as a band, they started as a band in Australia. Okay. All right. Well, I'll take that. I mean, we have to to claim every single, as you know, Will, Australians have to claim every single celebrity that has spent any time here. I, I think the BGs we can fucking claim, or at least a bit of the BGs. You know, England and Australia is a collaboration. Well, they had to sell albums here first, right? I imagine like that's where they got their first radio play. They had to sell albums here first before anyone else was to take them on. I would like to think that we had played more in that story, and I wish that it had gone that way. But really, they were out of here almost before <laughs> they had the right to get out of here. Yeah. <laughs> like they were just like, I just reckon we'll do better in England. And I was like, damn, I was kind of hoping it was the scenario you'd sketched out, but it was a little bit closer to them going, I reckon we could just piss off to England. I had a, a couple of friends um, staying with me over the weekend from uh, England. And um, one of the girls was telling me that uh, when she was, she's, uh, you know, she's in her late twenties, but when she was a, a teenager or not even a teenager, younger than a teenager, she was obsessed with, Peter Andre and I was like oh you know I said I'm aware of who Peter Andre is but in my mind like Peter Andre had some middling success here but then went to the UK 
and just exploded. And she was saying, well, that's kind of right. But she said he's, it's not like his musical career exploded. He went to the UK, continued to have middling success, but then went on, I'm a celebrity, get me out of here, ironically filmed in the Australian jungle. And that's when his celebrity exploded. That's when she first became aware of him. That's when he sort of went mainstream in the UK. And I was like, ah, isn't that amazing? And I was like, okay, I, I, I was like, uh, so he was this guy who sort of really, you know, you often hear about Australians who can't, you know, they have to go overseas to sort of stake a claim. But she was saying he's actually half English. So what I'm saying, Will, is we don't have to adopt Peter Andre at all. <laughs> we can say he was English the whole time. Well, firstly, good good point. Well made. Very <laughs> very Scott Morrison of you. Close the borders, build a wall. I get yeah. it. Uh, <laughs> so, you know, it's interesting, isn't it? Because, like, the logic would be, you know, you're a kind of a medium-sized fish in the Australian pond, but you don't have a huge amount of talent. You're never going to be the best singer. He was a pretty good dancer, I think. He was in you know, really good shape. I think people found him hot at some stage. Well, like, there was something there. There's a bit of trivia. So, you know that, that um, Neverland documentary that came out about the two, the two guys who were uh, molested yeah. by, by Michael Jackson? One of them was Wade. Uh, I can't remember his surname. He's an Australian choreographer. Yeah. But there's a little bit of trivia about that. He won a Michael Jackson, like, competition wade like, robson wayne robson that's right and so he won like wade. a michael jackson dance competition and they came to the attention to michael jackson do you know who came runner-up in that competition oh peter andre a young peter andre because i remember that right? that's my memory of peter andre was he was like he was he big, dodged a bullet a big muscle-bound <laughs> dude who danced like michael jackson even sort of sang yeah, like right. michael jackson i think even molly meldrum at one stage uh, on Hey Hey It's Saturday. <laughs> and I don't know if I'm making this up. But Molly said he's Australia's answer to Michael Jackson. Yeah. Which oh, could oh boy. completely different. <laughs> Hopefully that's been edited from the internet. Yeah, well, I think Rolf Harris is Australia's answer to Michael Jackson. <laughs> oh, boy. Well, let's move on to uh, a, a different topic. It's something that yes. um, the internet exploded with yesterday. Uh, I caught this kind of later than everyone. I, I texted you straight away because I was so angry about it. And then I saw that you had already sent off numerous tweets about this. Um, I, I would suggest, and I may be wrong, but I would suggest that I possibly was the... F I was up early. You broke the story? <laughs> All I would say is I was up early and I was a little ornery. Like some days I'll just keep out of shit, but somebody had flicked it my way, you know, obviously knowing our fascination for the great work of Keanu Reeves. Mm. And I read it. And the the thing that I, well, I will get to how much we objected to, but Malcolm Knox, who's the author of this piece, like is someone whose writing I normally enjoy. Yep. So the fact that I saw the headline of it and then I saw that it was Malcolm Knox's byline, I was like, I'm interested in this. I'm going to give it a read. And then I just sent out a couple of, I, like quite, you know, they weren't too harsh. No, tongue-in-cheek, like, I felt that. Tongue-in-cheek, you know, I normally, you know, like what Malcolm writes, but everything, you know, that he, <laughs> you, know, you have to look at everything he's ever written based on this terrible opinion or like, you know, those, just nothing particularly massive. But it turns out that I had uh, just thrown a little chum in the <laughs> ocean and then turned right back because <laughs> when I turned back around... Uh, I was like, we're going to need a bigger boat because there are a lot of sharks out there tearing this piece apart and a lot of them were coming through my timeline. I did retweet a couple that I thought were funny, funny, but uh, well, I was like, by the end of the I day when Keanu and that piece and Point Break were all trending on Twitter, I was just like, oh. Uh, 
I no, I hope nothing happens here and investigators go back to who fucking started this fire because I'm sorry, Billy Joel, it was I who started the fire. Now I know I don't. I'm not very familiar with the uh, the work of Malcolm Knox, but I am familiar with this trend in journalism where. You know, you just publish a very contrary... It's, let's call it uh, the Kane Corns effect. For anyone who listens to our other podcasts, it's when someone takes just an entirely contrary position just yeah. to get clickbait, just to get people... Just say the most oh, unreasonable it's the thing. It's the entire purpose of this article. This is part of the shit that I... like. Well, I feel like uh, I took the bait. Yeah. Because this article is 100%... It's at a pole down the bottom. Like, it's designed entirely for engagement it is 100 yes. percent clickbait and i was a little early fish <laughs> up going i could really chew on some bait right now yeah so we know that we have fallen for it we've been sucked in but i was thinking about this and i think we're just gonna have to be like that cop in the dark night you know the one who says to the joker look I know if I beat this shit out of you, you're going to enjoy it. So I just need to make sure I enjoy it a little more than you. So I think yeah. that's what we need to do. Will. We Great. need to get All something right. out of this. So yes. look, Malcolm, well done. A doff my cap to you, sir. You have yeah. won. You got me angry. We're now talking about it. But Two we're go- <laughs> men are now going to spend 45 minutes talking about this on a fucking quite popular podcast. So you did your job. I hope you get a fucking raise. Well done. This is what journalism is now. Uh, so for anyone who hasn't uh, read it, this was published in the Sydney Morning Herald. It's called, the headline is, The Only Thing Worse Than Point Break, Keanu Reeves Acting In It. Okay, so it starts off, Point Break turns 30 this year. As with many surfers passing their peak, it's still acting their teenager, more ludicrous with each year. Immediately inflammatory opening. I mean, that suggests for a start that people who surf, like Tim Winton, is ludicrous. But also, yeah, that's what you're basically saying, Malcolm Knox, that Tim yeah. Winton, Australia's greatest ever author, is ludicrous. Certainly, uh, here's what I would say. How old's Kelly Slater? Kelly Slater's like 50 or something, and he's still like one of the best surfers in the world. Like, surfing is a thing that older men do all the time. Yeah. Like, the idea that somehow there's this, some cutoff from doing the recreation of surfing at the age of 30 without looking ridiculous is inflammatory from the start. I mean, it is insane to think that, like, surfing is something like rollerblading, you know, something that kids should yeah. do, or, like, not even that, like, ra- razor scootering or something like that. In fact, reading this entire article, I got the sense of this was someone who used to get their head flushed down the toilet at school and is now taking the time to lash out at all those surfer bogans who used to beat them up. Because everything that he attacks is attacking a specific culture of male or a celebration of a certain kind of masculinity. Now, let me just say... Yeah, basically this article should be called I Don't Like Surfing or Surfers, So I Watch Point Break. (laughs) My thoughts. (laughs) Now, I understand like this idea of, um, you know, uh, 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 films that are terrible. Like, I think the, the closest analogy, the modern analogy would be the Fast and the Furious. Like, I don't get right. The Fast and the Furious. I'm not into car culture. Those films are, are, are patently ridiculous. And, you know, I, I'll watch half of one if it's on, but I don't, you know, I, I, I think they're a generally a waste of time. But I think that Point Break exists on a different level that we'll get to as we dig into the article. Would you yeah. agree? Well, firstly, the Fast and the Furious movies would not exist without the movie Point 100%. Break. 100%. Point plot. Break is the original Fast and the Furious movie. I think Point Break, for the reasons we will discuss in the next hour and a half. Uh, <laughs> in the two-parter. That, um, <laughs> the two-part episode. <laughs> in this nine-part serial. <laughs> I think that Point Break 
is better than the Fast and the Furious movies, but I'm a bit kinder to those movies than you are. I think there are some of those movies that are, well, they're all super entertaining. Like, I enjoy watching them. Yes, I don't think any of them are as complete a movie as Point Break is, no. Okay, so it continues. True, the Catherine Bigelow-directed original cannot age as poorly as a 2015 remake, which was born stale. That is the only thing he gets right in this entire article. The remake sucks. Yeah, but that's not a controversial opinion. No. Like, for a guy who's coming out going, I'll take fucking everyone down. Surfers, better fucking watch out. Keanu Reeves, I'm about to take you down. And then he's just gone, and also the sequel was no good. If you don't think the original is any good, you don't actually have the right... Yes, the rest of us knew the sequel was no good because we loved the original. So the gap between our expectation and the sequel is actually much worse than your expectation if you hated the original and you hated the sequel. Stop complaining, Malcolm, is what I'm saying. You know what the, 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 the remake gets wrong straight off the bat is the thing that makes the first one work is that it's a fish-out-of-water story. You've got this uptight FBI agent who learns to kind of like embrace this kind of surfer quasi spiritual culture, right? In the remake, he is an ex X games athlete who has moved into the FBI and is now sent into this mission. So he goes into the mission like fully formed. There is no him learning the skills like the classic hero's journey where they have to, you know, acquire skills and and meet mentors and stuff. He's like, I know straight away I can do a backflip on a dirt bike. Right. Absolutely. It's Yeah, it makes absolutely no sense to compare those things. It's like dropping John Wick into this movie. Like, he's a killing machine already. He's heavily trained. Absolutely no arc. First time he meets the rest of them, he kicks their ass and they're all dead. He shoots them in the head, headshot. <laughs> they're all fucking dead. Ten-minute movie. Uh, being bad was never a problem for Bigelow's Point Break. It became a cult movie and a defining artifact of the early 90s by being so bad... That millions no. of people thought it was good. No. Wrong. Completely wrong. wrong. Also, I don't think it was a cult movie. I think it was pretty mainstream. I remember being in high school when this came out and everyone at my high school going to see it. It wasn't like something that we discovered later on VHS. No. No, no. Absolutely. There were movies like that. But like Bill and Ted's movies like that, people that really found that Princess Bride is a yeah. classic example. Like Shawshank. Like, there was a time where these movies would go out at the cinema and they were only actually find, like, they, movies that we consider classic movies would find their audience from people finding, discovering them at the video store or online or on TV, whatever it is. But this was a popular movie. Point mm. Break was like a popular movie at the time and endured as a popular movie because it's a fucking good movie. <laughs> yeah. It generated cultural references, parodies, and even a stage show all through being somehow iconically good bad i've watched it again this saw week. that by the way one of the i i saw point break the musical oh did you the where yeah. the one that was in the states were they yeah i saw i saw it at the montreal uh comedy festival they did a performance of and it that's, and I saw that's it. is that the one where they t- take someone from the audience and make them johnny utah is that right i believe so yeah i think yeah. that's right from memory i would say i even that Makes me go, yeah, that's great. I'd love to go see that show. That sounds like a lot of fun. <laughs> You'd love to be that guy that they pick out of the audience. You'd go every night until they picked you. That's right. Uh, having watched it this week, I suspect it's passed through good again and reached the badness from which it can never climb out. Now, how no. has he arrived at this cyclical nature of good, bad? What a bad, good, bad. I don't even know what his chart is. 
How What's he saying? Work? It was it was terrible. Bad. So he's saying it was originally terrible. Yep. And then people in a cult way Ironically, decided it was good. Yeah. But now we've gone through irony. This is a post irony world, and we've gone back to it being bad. But if your original premise is incorrect, then your circle makes no sense regardless. Yeah, and it's also not like the room. Like when you're talking about bad, good films, yeah. like you're talking about general incompetence. This is. Catherine Bigelow. Like, the film she made before this was near dark. Like, she is an accomplished director, and the cinematography alone is exceptional. There are key sequences in this, like set pieces, that still stand up today. The skydiving sequence, the foot chase. Like, everything about it screams like filmmaker. It's not like... But also, think about, like, the excitement around, like, Patty Jenkins and people like that directing Wonder Woman. This is... Catherine Bigelow in like a male dominated universe, like directing an action film, like with such incredible like competency and like depth and intelligence that it doesn't fucking need for what is actually just like a, you know, a popcorn action movie, like a fish out of water popcorn action movie. It's so much better than it needs to be. Well, I'll go even further than that. If you watch the making of Point Break, which I have, Catherine Bigelow was, uh, she was the one who pushed for Keanu Reeves. They were all wanting like an established action hero. He was an indie kind of actor heartthrob at the time. But she thought he, he could make the transition to action. I think there's something about him that's very soulful and I think it works with the character. So if she fought the studio on that. She won that battle. And then they said to her, in the first two weeks, we're going to be watching the Rushes, the dailies every day. If we find that you are letting us down or we don't feel confident in you, you're going to get sacked. So she was working under the same under the kind of jurist that no male director would have had to work with in the same circumstances. Yeah. And so that in itself, like the idea that this is some sort of cult classic rather than like, I mean, this is somebody who wins an Academy Award, right? Did she? She won for the Hurt Locker. Yeah, right. So, you know, this is part of this is not a, like a mistake. This is clearly a step on somebody's journey into the sort of movies that they're going to try to make. So, yeah, it's... Anyway, and also, like, you know, in the family she grew up with, her dad being a male gigolo, like, it's been a tough life for her. (laughs) Point Break should never have escaped the death spiral of its plot. Keanu Reeves plays Johnny Utah, a novice FBI agent and former college football star, Reeves' senior buddy, Pappas, played by Gary Busey, gets a hunch that a gang of bank robbers must be surfers. They wear the masks of the ex-US presidents Reagan, Carter, Nixon and Johnson, but one of them chucks a brown eye on CCTV that reveals a tan line. Now, he's saying that dismissively. I think that's a brilliant bit of detective work that Sherlock would be proud of. (laughs) Well... What people don't realise is that, like, snowflakes and fingerprints, n- no two people have the exact same asshole <laughs> butthole. That's correct. <laughs> so, that is... I mean, the fact that this entire plot, like, starts because someone chucks a brown eye. Come on. What a great way to signal that you... To wink to the camera that you know that we're going to take things seriously, but also... This is what it is. Like 100%. this is in a, this is in a like a universe that is slightly elevated from the universe we live in. And you will recognize it, but there are going to be some ridiculous things that happen in here, and that's where the fun is. Well, this is one of the arguments he makes later on in the article, which I reckon is so wrong. Is he has his he claims that the film is not self-aware, that it 
put presents all these things really earnestly without being self-aware. And it's like, but you look at the people who are involved behind the scenes. Like, Catherine Bigelow knew what she was doing. It, she's a female working in a male-dominated genre. Are you telling me there isn't some kind of commentary on this? Yeah, but also, there is a level of thought in it all. Like, it's it's not like it's disjointed. It's mm. not like somebody's acting is at a different place to everybody else's acting in the movie. Like, it has an aesthetic and it's really consistent to that aesthetic. So do you think that that's incompetency? Because it's amazing that incompetency manages to get such a consistent aesthetic. Yeah. Like, even if you don't like the aesthetic, if it's consistent, you've got to say, this was a choice and they competently stuck to their aesthetic. It's, we've talked about this before when I was saying like David Lynch films, the thing that makes like in, in the hands of any other filmmaker, like the David Lynchisms, like the bizarre non sequiturs, the weird visuals, the scenes that go on for ages, the sound design would come across as incompetence. But because he's consistent in his approach and his style, it becomes like uh, transcendent. And you would argue that's the same thing. With Point Break, like you say, it's a consistent approach visually, tonally, the whole way through. It's not a happy accident. Okay, let's go on with Malcolm's. All right, so she just uh, he just rounds up the plot here. The hunch leads Johnny to infiltrate a Malibu surf crew headed by Patrick Swayze, a pretentious mystic whose dream is to surf a 50-foot wave at Bells Beach, amongst other things. There's a woman played by Laurie Petty who teaches Johnny how to surf and gets him into the gang, but spends most of the movie tied up and screaming for him to save her. I don't think that's true. I don't think she spends most of the film tied up sure maybe it fails the bechadel test i'm sure it does but i don't um, i don't think of tyler as being some kind of helpless female i think she's quite proactive in this film i think that for the time she felt like she had agency but i think in recollection like as in looking back i mean there are so many movies of that era and you know eras much closer to the time we live in that um you know haven't haven't like kind of represented women fully, you know, in sort of these male dominated plots. Like we're seeing a redressing of that now and that is a good thing. But yes, it, look, yes, probably. Okay. I'll give you half a point for that one, Malcolm. But you could also say the same of pretty much every other movie of that era. As with any good, bad movie, describing the plot gives a false impression that something this ridiculous must be fun. What does that sentence even mean? What well, is fun? It is fun. It's like... Yeah. The character's I'm not going to tell you about the plot because you might be under the mistaken impression it sounds fun. And yeah. that would refute my point. The lead character is called Johnny Utah. Johnny he Utah. He was a famous college athlete who's now gone undercover as an FBI agent. Like, that is fun. It makes no sense. The leader of the criminal gang put ex-president masks on and then they're all surfers and skydivers who have, like, a guru. Yeah, like... It's fun. This is a pretty fun movie that we're describing right now. All right, now this is where it gets nasty. What's more fun, I guess, is the opportunity <laughs> to laugh at what a hopeless, unintentional mishmash it is. The actors seem to have their own idea of what genre movie they're in. Busey does a Beverly Hills Cop. John C. McKinley does a Principal Rooney from Ferris Bueller's Day Off. Petty is a cat people is in a cat people slasher pick, while Swayze is surprisingly watchable, doing an impression of Kevin Costner's Dances with Wolves. First of all, I mean, Busey uh, does a Beverly Hills Cop. This film I would put in the same kind of category and genre as Beverly Hills Cop. It's like an enjoyable, fun, 
action romp. John C. McGinley as Principal Rooney in Ferris Bueller's Day Off. You were struggling to find a similarly there, Malcolm. That's clearly, if that's the best you could come up with, there is a history of like cop films and procedural films where you have a yelling police chief and you come up with Principal Rooney? Like how the fuck does that make any sense? And then the last bit to show that you're some kind of like literate film nerd is, oh, cat people. Well done. You named a film that was in black and white. But, but what part, like you said, what part of this plot, when you say it out loud, which is the reason he did not want to say it out loud, indicates to you that those people aren't in different movies. They're all playing versions of that archetype. That's the whole point of this movie. 100%. Look at all the, it's got that Con Air feel to it, right? Where yes. you know that they're all playing out these archetypes. Like, I think it's a better movie. Like, I love Con Air, but I think this is actually a better movie than Con Air Point Break. Like, I just think it has something to it that is elevates it to, like, to Con Air to me is somewhere between Fast and the Furious and this. Like, whereas it's mostly good, but it's, like, kind of just super entertaining. But they're all just playing caricatures, right? That's part yeah. of the fun, right? Yeah. These ridiculous over-the-top characters, you're suddenly in this universe and get to, like, play around in it. It's clearly what they're doing. Like, when you cast Gary Busey as the partner... You are, that says something. Mm. The real fascination of Point Break is what a thumpingly terrible actor Keanu Reeves was. Sometimes the whole movie feels like a prank at his expense. Like he's been told to read his lines as if he's Al Pacino and Scarface while everyone on set is laughing at him. I mean, what a horrible, horrible <laughs> a thing to say. Horrible like, thing to say. There's just no reason. Because also, okay, we're obviously coming into the territory here where Malcolm's really going to upset people because you probably could have got away with saying you don't like Point Break and Point Break doesn't hold up. But the minute you make it personal and you turn on, have you not checked the internet in the last 10 years? Like everyone in the world is problematic apart from Keanu Reeves. Yeah. Here's what I'll say about Keanu Reeves. Keanu Reeves doesn't have great range. But Keanu Reeves in the right role no shit. is fantastic. And this is a tailor-made... I mean, this basically was the template for the Keanu Reeves role. Like, from this is Speed. From this is Neo. From this is John Wick. He's really, really good at playing uncomplicated characters. And, like, I also think, too, that this idea that because he's not Gary Oldman or something, that makes him a, a bad actor... Harrison Ford can only do one fucking thing. Harrison Ford plays Harrison Ford, and he's been nominated for Oscars. But also, you don't need two Gary Boosies. Yeah. Right? Like, no, you fuck. need somebody that Gary Boosie can Gary Boosie off. I would see that film. <laughs> like, if the two Boosies was a movie, I would definitely see that. <laughs> um, yeah, I, I think that... Yeah, okay. Anyway, we, we love Keanu. We, everybody knows we love okay. Keanu. Now, this is like, okay, so he follows up that sentence. So he's Al Pacino and Scarface while everyone on the set is laughing at him. But are they? The horrifying thing that in the America of that time, they probably weren't. So now he's casting dispersions on an entire nation of people that America. they don't get irony. Well, I mean, okay, it, it is the place that came up with South Park and the fucking Simpsons. So I could make an argument that they've got some familiarity with the concept of irony. Reeves' clueless affect had worked as a boy hustler in my own private Idaho, which was released as the same year as Point Break. Yeah, isn't that amazing that that guy who can't act can play a character in two completely different movies? In completely different ways. It's yeah. almost like he's performing differently for the roles. Tragically, while his Idaho co-star River Phoenix died, Reeves was left alive 
to pursue the point break fork in the road and turn himself into a hero of film of a film in which stunts and action could not quite obscure his absence of acting ability. Now, look, I don't want to put words in Malcolm's mouth, but it sounds like he's saying <laughs> the tragedy here is that Reeves didn't die instead of River Phoenix. That's, I mean, ordinarily, this is the sort of topic where you wouldn't want to put words in someone's mouth, but seeing that Malcolm wrote those words down in a fucking newspaper, I think it's fair comment to say, probably if he had his time over, he might phrase that a little differently fuck me like when i saw that i was like what hang on what (laughs) i wish that keanu reese had died one of the most beloved people in fucking entertainment i wish that he died like i wish that river phoenix had like lived sure but i mean like could he just not in your horrible fictional scenario could he not just make movies could you just go i wish that he'd decided not to make any movies anymore like or you could just not watch the movies rather than wish his death i mean it's amazing isn't it? i assuming that malcolm in researching this article watched all of keanu's films and he would have known that the whole motivating factor of the john wick franchise was someone murdering a puppy so he goes and does the next best thing which is to speculate about killing keanu reeves and then is surprised that everyone gets motivated to go on a rampage i mean it's I just, like, I wonder what's going on in Malcolm's life. i got to be honest with you. I feel like maybe things are rough for Malcolm at work. Like, you yeah. know, there's a bit of pressure. Like, you know, a new media company that is like, you know, you have been a sensible journalist for a long time and you know what people don't like these days? Sensible. People yeah. like provocative opinions. Hot and takes. Malcolm's like, I've got to take a big fucking swing who is the most beloved person going around and I'm going to fucking take him down. Perhaps the generational poignancy of Point Break lies in this crossroads. Reeves sold out. But did he have any talent to sell out in the first place? And did he know he was selling out? Or you already said you liked my, my private Idaho. <laughs> did he think he was selling out? He's so earnest in his hopelessness in this movie. You, can almost, you almost want to hug him and whisper in his ear that he can be a beautiful school teacher and a friend and a father instead of allowing his extraordinary good looks to drag him into a profession he's no good at and towards ambitions what he can these? never fulfill. Like... He's a he's professional he's no good dollars at. or something. Like <laughs> he's, he's probably a, like billionaire or something. Like he's got so much money. He's been in all the most successful films of all time, and he remains unaffected by his success. He is a role model on every fucking level. But you know what? He probably would have been a good school teacher as well. <laughs> it's all there in his inability to make even the silliest lines of WP ill of script sound like they're spoken by a sentient being. But you can't dislike him. You pity him. No, we don't, mate. We don't. No, you pitied him. Absolutely not. I mean, all those guys who bullied you at high school, all those surfers who used to flush your head down the toilet, wanted to be Keanu Reeves. All, all he needed to do in this article was not presume that he was talking on behalf of all of us. Yeah. Like, if he just said, I didn't like this, this is an insight into me, Malcolm. Malcolm did not enjoy this thing. I think people would have let it pass. But the idea that he's like, as we all know, we all hate Keanu Reeves and Point Break. And we were like, don't say that. That's not true. Point Break is a key cultural reference point for the Zoolander films, created years later by Gen X's trying to make sense or comedy of the youth that they had wasted. 
Americans, embarrassed that they couldn't laugh at their stupidity in films like Point Break and Top Gun, found a broad, unambiguous way of doing it through Ben Stiller and Owen Wilson. Once they realized Keanu Reeves was Derek Zoolander, the penny dropped. That is, again, the dumbest statement I've ever heard. You're saying that Americans never realized that Top Gun could be parodied. Have you ever heard of a film called Fucking Hot Shots? They made two films which parodied Top Gun. Americans were well aware that the action genre could have been parodied. It happened numerous times. Even the police genre, they made three naked gun films. They even happened before they made Point Break. The idea that they didn't realize until Zoolander in the early 2000s is ludicrous. They constantly have been parodying everything that they have done, like for the construction and then deconstruction of things has been a constant theme of the entertainment industry there are good things in point break the president's mask on the robber's face is an inspired choice there's a terrific chase scene through the back streets of the houses in santa monica even if it does demonstrate that reeves runs like a profoundly uncoordinated kid who couldn't do the hundred in less than 20 seconds now he's taken the piss like i feel like oh, this is the just, bit where he knows like he knows yeah, this he's just taking the piss this kid this is the Joker. Also, fuck that kid. This is the Joker saying to us, we're in the cell with him, and he's saying, you want to know how your partner died? <laughs> and we're like, all right, we're going to loosen our tie, we're going to turn off the cameras, and we're cracking our knuckles. Like, seriously, you're going to make fun of how Keanu Reeves runs. Keanu Reeves, who has probably established him more than himself more than anyone else as an action movie star because he actually does the action. He does the jujitsu in John Wick. He learnt martial arts for the Matrix films. Like that, I'd say, is his one defining characteristic is he's a fantastic physical actor. Right. So in Malcolm's world, physicality isn't a legitimate part of acting, right? Because for Meryl Streep, for all Meryl Streep's skills as an actress, or Gary Oldman, or any of these sort of people, right? Yeah. Like, have you seen them do a, they're a not- roundhouse kick? <laughs> like, it's rare that you get to see them fucking just blow someone's head off in one shot. <laughs> well, all I'm saying is Sophie wouldn't have to make a choice if she had an AK-47. <laughs> um, I watched Nobody. Take those you Nazis watched, down. Have you seen it? No. So it's... It. I- yeah, I've it's John Wick, but with Bob Odenkirk. And it's great because Bob Odenkirk isn't yeah. Keanu Reeves, but he still got in himself into super shape and learned how to do karate and shit. Like, you can't just... Like, that's part of acting. That's like one of the skills of acting, surely. There are two skydiving scenes, the first of which has no function in the story, but shows exhilarating footage of the American Southwest. Oh. It has a heap of function in the story. It's Bodhi testing... Johnny Utah's loyalty. He wants to know how far he can push him because he knows what he's going to have to eventually to do to Johnny down the line. So if he wins Johnny's trust, he can then take him up in the plane again and reveal that he's kidnapped his girlfriend. I mean, it it makes a hundred percent sense in the in terms of the plot, but not just in terms of the plot. I've been watching a lot of documentaries about cults and how they initiate you into cults, and this is literally how it happens. You do like a series of tests. You don't just go straight to here's what we're doing. Here's a mask. Let's rob a bank. You've got to like see how far you can push that person. And the thing is, it's not even just about testing how far they'll go. People are more willing to go further the further they've already gone. So by doing a series of those things, you're more likely to do this other thing than you would if you just asked them straight away to do it. So So it's the test. Right. The second skydiving scene is an excuse to bring the film's homoerotic undertones to the surface. Reeves and Swayze in full frontage clinch while daring each other to pull the ripcord. 
Here you hope the film is laughing at itself, but it's not. Once again, I think that a female director working a male-dominated uh, genre, this scene, uh, of course, this would be a, a, a consideration when, when, when putting this scene together. It makes no sense to think that these... I mean, to think that you have like a writer and a director and producers and two actors, all of them looking at the scene, all of them working out how to best do the scene... And none of this come. You think none of this would come up in any dis- even if it's subconsciously it's coming up. The fact that he's saying that oh no, the film is just like a, is completely uh, has no senti- sentience. It's just going around putting scenes together. People I, are behind. I'm gonna making choices. I'll to get argue. To this point. I'll argue a, f- a further point. He clearly is that. It's like I mean, he's what he's recognizing is right. But he's not thinking about it in any context. Because think about studios. You're talking about the fact that the studio's over Catherine Bigelow's shoulder for the first five days going to replace her. If you've suddenly got these two male leads in this movie doing something that is genuinely for the times homoerotic, you know, if you want to put it like that, but at least like the closeness of a male friendship that's like, you know, it's kind of has its own intimacies and those sort of things that weren't being portrayed on screen. You're not telling me there's not a studio executive who goes, hey, I reckon we're not going to sell as many tickets to this in the Midwest if they reckon they're poofs. Do you know what I mean? Like, that's the era, <laughs> yeah. right? That's still... So it's got to be a decision to do it the other way. It, you could have by accident mm. done it the, like the way where it isn't, but you couldn't by accident do it the way it is without somebody saying, are you doing this on purpose? It has to be on purpose. And just a side note on those skydiving scenes that makes them even more amazing is that... They weren't given permission for Patrick Swayze to do the skydiving sequences himself. They couldn't get insured. So Patrick Swayze, off his own bat, went up there with a camera crew and they just renegade style shot the skydiving, some of the skydiving sequences with him doing all the action, which is, that is like Tom Cruise pre-Tom Cruise. So even like all that other stuff aside, it's like that's an incredible thing that you're seeing. An actual actor who learned how to skydive, who despite the studio's wishes went up and did that. Like that alone makes the scene incredible. Well, the fact that also they clearly believed in the project enough to do that sort of risky stuff, right? I want this to look legitimate. So then the idea that they're going to that length to make that scene look legitimate, but they have no idea what's going on in the rest of the movie is also just counterintuitive. The surfing footage of pro surfers backlit to conceal their faces was praised by critics, which only underlines how little they know. <laughs> yeah, right. Everyone else is wrong but me. One of my arguments is that everybody liked it. <laughs> Punters and what's critics. What's that Skinner quote? Maybe I'm out of touch. No, it's the children that are out of touch. <laughs> Reeves makes a good enough fist of trying to stand up on his board for you to know he needs four years of daily work to become a moderately proficient surfer instead of the few days it takes him to achieve cred with the gang. There's the usual Gidget-esque intercutting of flat water with massive waves. Watching this movie with my 19-year-old son, I asked what he thought and he overturned the entire critical consensus by replying, "It it wouldn't be quite so bad if it didn't have the surf scenes. I know what's happened is like, this is just a classic. His son's old enough now that he's cool. He has his own thoughts about life. And you know how sometimes dads go from being like, I'm the dad, I'm the one who like makes decisions and know what's going on. And then suddenly they almost become intimidated 
by their young sons. They want to be like in with them and they want to like know what the cool music, the cool language and all that sort of stuff is. And then almost the son is the leader. I feel like that's what's happened at Malcolm's house. The son is wearing the pants in that relationship right. now. And he's just gone, I don't like point break. Dad, father, I want a golden goose and 1,500 mm. words on why Keanu Reeves should have died. <laughs> I'm the man of the house now. <laughs> Mother, I'm sharing the bed with you tonight. Oh Father is now the son. <laughs> wow, no, wow, I'll write an article too. <laughs> Don't you understand? If Keanu Reeves had died, my son would not be in bed with my wife. <laughs> it all makes sense now. I have to confess. I feel like the last person born in the mid-1960s who never saw Point Break. I watched virtually no movies or TV or listened to any music between 1989 and 1993, so I missed what I'm told were cultural moments that define my generation. Ah, oh, are you one of those fucking, I don't have a TV type dudes? Because just get stuffed. Well, also, if you weren't there for it when it came out, then you, you chose not to consume it at the time. You can't become fucking walking into our party where we were all there for it. We were there for Point Break. You can't swan in as a guy who didn't mm. watch no media in that time and then suddenly be having all these cowboy opinions about Point Break. <laughs> Watching Point Break now, I regret nothing. Like most of the culture we were rejecting, Point Break is insolubly American. See, that comes up again. He's got this real anti-American bias. It baffles me if uh, anyone thought it had anything to recommend in it until I realized that those millions who loved it were mostly American. Look, once again, and this is only anecdotally, but everyone in my high school went and saw Point Break. It wasn't just American kids. Everyone I knew... I mean, we were quoting that film well into university. I don't think it was a specifically American cultural phenomenon. Literally over my right shoulder, there is a poster of Point Break on my wall in my <laughs> office. Yes. <laughs> Uh, by 1991, our status as a cultural colony of America had become so unbearable that the thinking person was pressed into rejecting it. Oh, just uh, whatever, bloody Poindexter. Yeah. I want to flush your head down the toilet. In fact, <laughs> that's what we're going to do. We're going to flush Malcolm's head down the toilet. When I say Point Break now, it feels like a very foreign film from a different planet almost, and to be bewildered by it is satisfying, showing that the separation was effective. You know what his follow-up article is going to be, Will? I hate joy. Things that bring pleasure make me mad. Well, I just, again, even that final line is incorrect because he didn't like it in the first place. He didn't see it and then he didn't like it and he still doesn't like it. Like, so it's not a separation from a time at all. It's a, You have the same opinion you had 20 years ago. Never does Point Break look more American than when it arrives for the final scene in Australia. Years after the gang imploded and everyone else died or got caught, Johnny tracks down Bodie at the 50-year swell at Bells Beach. Only it's not Bells Beach, which is just as well because there's no reason anyone would go there for such an event. I mean, that doesn't make any sense either. Like, Bells Beach is one of the most famous, like, surfing spots in the entire world. Like, it's entire... I thought that was actually one of the great kind of like uh, 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 references in Point Break is they actually reference an actual surf spot that was obscure enough that maybe mainstream audiences wouldn't know it. It's not like, you know, uh, talking about Hawaii or anything like that. 
but it is like a, a, a genuine like a, a surf spot that people that, that that they have championships at and the people have like won championships at people would have yes it has some familiarity to the surfing world i'm not sure if geographically you know that sort of wave would come in at bells beach i don't i don't know enough about oceanography and all the contributing factors to know if that is the beach where those surf conditions would prevail. Maybe that is Malcolm's point. Maybe he's just done a little bit more research. <laughs> you do think? You th- when researching this article, he just researched the likelihood of 50-year waves coming to us. No, because I think that he actually got it wrong anyway. Someone fact-checked him on this point. There's something. There's some detail in this that he actually got incorrect anyway. The Bell's Beach of Point Break is fringed by Californian pine trees. The only Australian thing about the scene is a one-line cameo from Peter Phelps. Bodie goes into the surf, wipes out, and is apparently dies. Johnny throws away his law enforcement badge. But by now, this is not even a spoiler. There's nothing left that this film hasn't already spoilt, but at least they never really made it to Australia. I think that final scene is one of the most, like, often quoted, most iconic uh, moments of the film. Like, I, th- I don't know any... Like, Australians often get their noses out of joint when we're represented in popular media. Like, even the Simpsons episode put a lot of noses out of joint. I don't think anyone has anything but affection for the way Australia is portrayed. Like, our police having machine guns and us using phrases like death on a stick. <laughs> Peter Phelps, right? Fucking Phelpsy. Yeah. Iconic. Like, Phelpsy. you don't need to be in the whole movie, but you're in fucking Point Break, mate. That'd be... I'd be wrapped if I was in Point Break. Like, do you imagine? Like... It, not a big role, but just for the rest of your life, you're like, oh, yeah, you know, at the end of Point Break when they're in Oregon, not California. That was the thing that someone corrected. Um, but they said it was Bell's Beach. That was me that right. came out and said, wouldn't go right. out there. It's death on a stick, mate. I'd dine out on that for the rest of my life. So, uh, all right, that bring, that's, that's the article uh, brought to an end. Will, do you feel satisfied? Do you feel like we beat up on Malcolm enough that you enjoyed it more than he enjoyed writing the article? No, but I enjoyed it. I'm glad that we did it. Well... Like Johnny Utah, I feel a little bit hollow. I feel like mm. maybe maybe we get to the, the end of it and we realize, well, what is being an FBI agent all about, really? So maybe we should be just tossing our TOEFOP badge into the surf and just getting on with our lives, which we'll do with some mail. All right, so this first uh, bit of mail is from Chris. Uh, he says, to Colin Fop, dear sirs, I recently listened to Charlie's episode of Fofop with James, Mr. Sunday Movies, called Command, Commando, which I misread as Com and Do. Imagined, I imagined a flight of fantasy where the ever-charming Australian comedian, artist and writer Andu became a commando or perhaps leads to a reboot of the Schwarzenegger film, possibly even rehabilitating the Australian Special Forces reputation abroad. But no, James just pronounces a word differently to Charlie. Love this show and looking more to many more awesome times will spent. Ah, two puns in one sign-off. Yeah, so check out that episode. But I was going to say Ando. Um, so anyway, like at work, a couple of my friends, uh, because as a joke, many years ago, my company was uh, called Comedy Commando because uh, a friend was like, uh, called me Ando, the comedy commando. And we used to joke about it. It was like the way that my friends would make fun of me. And so I decided that I would call my company comedy commando. And then that got shortened to commando and then to Ando. And anyway, it's become Ando recently. And people, they, they think it's very funny to constantly like congratulate me on things that Ando has done instead of me. So that'll be like, I love that painting last night. Well, and like ask me <laughs> questions. What was Michelle Payne like? I'm like, I'm not, I am Ando, not Ando. 
I realized as I was uh, coming up with the title for that episode that I was going to confuse a few people, but that made me enjoy it even more. Uh, if you want to listen to that episode of Fofop, you can go to tofop.com. Uh, this week, I believe Justin Hamilton is the guest on Fofop. Is that correct? Yeah, just recorded immediately before we spoke. So that'll be up uh, when that has been uploaded and edited. But yeah, good episode with Hamo. Good to have him back on the podcast. And who's on Willosophy this week? Uh, Melissa Doyle, uh, the journalist Melissa Doyle, who people will know. She's got a... Um, a new podcast series herself, called Audible series called uh, Age Against the Machine, which is about aging in women and women's relationship to aging. And it explores an incredible amount of facets of that from the beauty industry to First Nations people to the way that we view aging in our society. It's a really interesting chat. If you only kind of know her as a journo or a breakfast TV host, it might be an interesting one to listen to. And she's a uh, She's a really fun person to talk to. I enjoyed it. And there's other uh, AFL podcast, Two Guys, One Cup. New episodes every Thursday. Uh, you'll find that at tofop.com. Will, one final bit of mail from Justin to Colin Fop. Hey, Will and Charlie, I've been listening to the podcast for two years and Dad Pod since the beginning, since my wife gave birth to our first girl around the time it started. That wife is a nurse and I was once a pharmacy technician. So, of course, I have to listen to the number one podcast amongst medical professionals. According to my podcast app, since 239, Cheeky Boy, when I recently started the official recommendation of listening to old apps by going backwards and stopping when you feel uncomfortable, I noticed that the clip show, 265, Back to Basics, was not finished. I started it up, sounds familiar, but it was old Batman, so of course it sounded like Tofop. Then there was a dry cleaning conversation. What the fuck? Dry cleaning just came up again in episode 334, a great business idea, I think. Amazingly... Both businessman Charlie and Will the Bill are both still just as clueless about the chemicals involved. Great show, guys, which is American for mates. Just joined up to the Patreon at level one. That puts Tofop on the same level with Bad Obsession Motorsports in my book. So congratulations there. Uh, yes, apologies, Justin. We do tend to repeat ourselves in this show. Tune in in about 100 episodes time when we do a breakdown of an article about Point Break that we'll probably dig out from the past. We found this old article. <laughs> But, but you should be like Justin and support us on Patreon because that is the way uh, we keep the shows coming out on a weekly basis. You go to uh, patreon.com slash TOEFOP. There's lots of bonus content up there. There's uh, extra le- letter episodes. There's James Fosdyke uh, uh, comic strips and there's heaps of bonus videos. So you check out patreon.com. But um, I feel satisfied, Will. I feel like we, we got off our chest what we needed to get off our chest in this episode and don't ever come for Keanu again let this be a warning to all you hot take journalists out there Keanu is untouchable yeah exactly Malcolm welcome to the school of hard knocks (laughs) nice that was hilarious I'm Charlie Clawson (laughs) I'm Will Anderson 